the podcast for the inquisitive diver. Hey there, dive buddies, and welcome to the show. My next guest is a co-founder and principal scientist at the Marine Megafauna Foundation, where he leads the Global Whale Shark Research Program and a science advisor to the Global Whale Shark Photo Identification Database. He has recently co-edited a textbook, Whale Sharks, Biology, Ecology and Conservation, which will be available this coming August, and has also been involved in the publication of over 50 scientific papers. Geekiness aside, Simon is not too shabby with a camera and co-hosts a wildlife and travel photography gig called Nature Tripper, a website and magazine with his better half and conservation designer Madeline Pierce, a.k.a. Mads. Oh, and to top it all off, he's a Kiwi, so he's not only a brain box, but he's probably got a sense of humour too. Simon, welcome to the show, buddy. How you doing? Thanks very much, man. It's great to be here. Did I get all that right? Yeah. No, that sounds good. Very flattering. Thank you. <laughs> no dramas. It's a bit of a tongue twister when I try to get through it all. <laughs> yeah. So much science. So little time. I know, right? Oh. Um, okay. Well, talking of science, um, how, how did it all begin for you? How did you get into, uh, into the watery world? Um, well, I learned to dive when I was at university. Uh, and that was a bit of a game changer for me, really. Uh, I was I was already studying biology, and I was very interested in conservation. Uh, but when I first started diving and snorkeling up in Vanuatu on a family holiday, I saw all these like kind of neon coloured fish, and just you don't really see that amongst terrestrial life in New Zealand so much. <laughs> so I was pretty blown away, and then thought, well. Also, after watching people go kind of crazy in the bush for weeks on end, uh, the idea of like warm water marine biology started sounding quite attractive to me, really. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, so I moved over to Australia and started studying sharks and rays. Uh, and that's where I uh, became really good friends with Andrea Marshall, and who, who was doing her PhD on manta rays. Mm -hmm. And we ended up, yeah, co-founding this uh, marine megafauna foundation uh, where we work on uh manta rays with andrea in charge of that and me in charge of the whale shark research program happy days it's a small world i've heard of <laughs> uh, andrea marshall through anna flam when she used to come across to thailand when i was working there um so she's on the manta bit you're on the whale shark bit how long has it been going when was it set up seems like such a long time ago but also just yesterday like i, I mean i first started working on whale sharks uh, with Andrea uh, mm -hmm. over in Mozambique in 2005. So I was, I was doing my PhD in, in Brisbane at the time on some of the sharks and rays found up here. And then, yeah, she kind of, well, she was like, it'd be quite good to have a dive buddy. And also <laughs> there's, there's lots of interesting stuff to check out over here. So uh, I thought that sounded like, yeah, pretty interesting opportunity. I'd never been to Africa before. I was, I kind of thought I was going to get like, jumped by lines as I got off the plane or something <laughs> but um nevertheless like checked it out and uh yeah it really is a pretty amazing place and and the whale sharks just blew me away yeah and have you always had a, a love for the whale sharks or is that just something that's progressed through time in the water it's definitely developed actually so it was coming from New Zealand where we've got lots of endangered species and things but also a lot of really good work going on in terms of conservation um I was I was kind of drawn to some of the stuff that people weren't really paying much attention to, things like uh, lizards and stuff. And then a lot of my PhD ended up being on stingrays because I realized there was nothing known about them and they, they were really under threat. Mm. So then whale sharks, this big, iconic, charismatic species. And I was like, well, I, I don't really care. Uh, like, I, I mean, surely we know everything about these animals. Mm. Like, that's not, that's not somewhere where... The, that I, I'm interested in, like, I, I can't help. Um, mm. But then when when I started looking into it, just pretty much to humour Andrea, um, I realised that actually, like, there, there wasn't much known about them. And and there was still some uh, good-sized fisheries going on at that point. And I was like, these things are a bit screwed, actually. Mm. So that's when I started really getting interested. Um, so it was very much a, uh, like, because I was interested in conservation as my kind of primary thing, I was... I kind of think of myself as a bit of a problem solver. Mm -hmm. And when I realized that whale sharks were kind of a problem to be solved, that's what really got me interested. But yeah. when you start working with them, I mean, they're an amazing animal. So it's, 
So, yeah, I mean, I love him now, um, but it was definitely <laughs> the problem that intrigued me initially. It was it, it was the whale shark that actually got me into the water. I was actually uh, oh, petrified of, of the water as a kid, but um, my dad called me down as a, I think I must have been about seven or eight years old, and called me down to see what was on the TV, and it was a whale shark, and I was just completely mesmerized. Um, and, but like you say, there's so little that we still don't know about them. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, it's so awesome with, I think it's, it's something you don't really get on land where you can be so close to such a large animal, but in complete safety. Like mm. they really are such an amazing ambassador for marine life in general. Mm. Yeah. They're the big softies, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I had um, actually just thinking, um, saying about softies. We had an incident a few years ago in Thailand where one was literally being a puppy underwater and it was it was chasing divers and we thought it was, you know, trying to nudge divers out the way to exit and, and go in a direction. But it would stop and turn around and come back and it was just nudging divers for about 20, 25 minutes. And it was literally like an underwater puppy, but four metres yeah. long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Big puppy, but... Yeah, they're super cute, eh? Like, you get that sometimes. I think especially sometimes when you run into sharks that haven't seen people before, and they're just obsessed. It's so awesome. It's a lot of It's really good for photography. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the research that you're doing with the animals, I've, I've done a bit of Facebook stalking and looking through your Twitter and all that kind of thing. Can you talk us through some of the stuff that you do? Like, I noticed that there's tagging going on and ultrasound and all sorts of scientific-y kind of stuff. Um, what's it all about? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's still all about the conservation for me. Mm. Um, so we did a global conservation assessment of the species back in 2016, and we found that actually more than half of the world's population had been killed off since the 1980s or so. So that really brought home how work there still is to do and with the research we're doing like sort of you alluded to before there's still some pretty big questions around uh their biology and things but also just how many of them are left but mm. uh one of the really cool things about whale sharks is like i said before you can get close to them in complete safety uh there are some good places like thailand where you can be in the water with them fairly regularly and it makes them a really good species to kind of trial some of these non-invasive techniques um, so we can learn more about them without actually disturbing them. It's, it's, it's a pretty cool evolution because when I started working on whale sharks back in 2005, I, I remember my PhD supervisor at the time, he was just like, well, you know, you're going to have to kill a couple, right? And I was like, what? Uh, what? And, and he's going, well, yeah, I mean, you can't really research them. Um unless you're able to like you know dissect them and things like that and i was like well the you know the the dolphin and whale people seem to have some stuff going on is like ah yeah i don't know about what that what they're up to so i was like well i'm gonna find out <laughs> and um found that with the like with the dolphins and whales and things they were often using things like photographic identification uh where you can tell individuals apart by sort of characteristic markings and things like that like the flukes on uh, like the tails on on humpback whales or the, mm. the fin sort of mark kind of cuts and things on on dolphins and stuff. And I was like, well, you know, wh whale sharks are a really good candidate for that kind of work because we can distinguish them using their their characteristic kind of white spots as, as sort of a fingerprint for mm -hmm. each one. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, it's just kind of like we started trying to work with them underwater and and then try and do things like work out how big they were. So we started using things like lasers on a camera so we could try and we, so we could project lasers points onto them and see how big they were and things. And we just keep on trying to find out more and more about them without, without disturbing them really. And it's mm. been really cool to, yeah, uh, recently, as you said, there's, um, it was actually some colleagues that work in an aquarium. Uh, up in Okinawa, and they've pioneered a waterproofed ultrasound unit, and they've been able to trial it on a few species up there, like manta rays, and also they've got a whale shark up there. Mm. And then, um, yeah, so they joined us in the field out in the Galapagos to try and use it out there for the first time. So that that was definitely a, an exciting project to be part of. Yeah. And 
we've now worked out how to take blood samples from them uh, when they're swimming around kind of unrestrained and things as well. So it is pretty cool to try and push the boundaries of what we can achieve. And, and hopefully that's well we're already seeing with some of the techniques that it's kind of filtering down to some of the other species that uh, even less is known about. Mm. So was it uh, just going back a step? Is it you guys that that narrowed down the the spot markings to identify the whale sharks? Because I've always been told that we should try and photograph the left hand side just above the pectoral fins. Yeah. So there was a, actually a medical doctor that was working over in uh, Western Australia, up in in Exmouth, mm-hmm. uh, and he was the first person to to really uh, pioneer kind of field field research on whale sharks back in the 1980s and he was certainly the first one that kind of raised the possibility of identifying them uh by their spots and sort of started that project over there um and then there was one of the uh guy brad norman um who's also from wa uh he did his masters out there in the 90s and from that sort of trying to started trying to create more of a database um, so I was one of the first people to get involved in that kind of global database. Um, but like there's some, some very clever computer scientists and things that are heavily involved in that. So mm. I'm kind of coming at it from the, the user side, uh, as opposed to the artificial intelligence side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And is it similar to the, the database or the, the, the software that's used for recognizing the, the mantas? Same sort of concept. Yeah. yeah. There's actually, um, there's manta rays were a bit trickier uh, because they, well, they don't have such sort of regular spots as a whale shark and they've got like more blotches and things like that. And uh, just a lot of things were more difficult with manta rays. Mm-hmm. So they were able to push, sort of push the the algorithms and stuff and, and develop that more because there's so much interest in that sort of field for all sorts of things these days, like the, uh, like kind of using photography and um, all sorts of things, you know, facial recognition, all sorts. Um, so the computer science has really come along. And actually just now we're starting to use them, the algorithms they developed for mantas uh, for whale sharks, and that's probably better than what we were using previously. Happy days. And how big yeah, is this, how big is this database getting then? Is, is it? Oh, it's pretty incredible, actually. There's so... Uh, since I've been involved, we went from uh, less than a thousand uh, sharks, almost all of which were from Western Australia, to now I think we're at around thirteen thousand sharks oh, from I think fifty plus countries. Yeah. Uh, so it really is a global database now. Happy days. Um, what do we know from start to finish? Where are they born? What size are they when they're born? What depths are they born at? How far do they migrate? Um, how long do they live? Where do they breed? All of the above. Do you want to try and give a, an overall kind of lifestyle or lifespan of a I, I mean, no, because that would kill my job security. You know, I've got a whole career to figure that stuff out. There's, but um, no, it was interesting, actually, because when we went through the this, um, you mentioned the textbook. So we've just been editing this textbook on what we do know of whale sharks. And it's amazing that we've got enough to fill a quite a quite a thumping book, yeah. uh, but there are still some pretty big knowledge gaps there. And one of the kind of fun things I was involved in was trying to come up with a like a hypothesis on what their life cycle might be. And mm. there's like so much of it is just waving my hands in the air based on like pretty much based on where we don't see them. So like, for instance, like say over in Western Australia at Ningaloo Reef, most of the sharks there are juvenile males. And that's turned out to be a real cliche uh, throughout the world, like Mozambique, where I was working initially, and uh, in places like Tanzania and Mexico and um, uh, the Arabian region and the Philippines and all these other places. It's all these juvenile and, and uh, Thailand as well. It's, mm-hmm. it's all these juvenile males. I was just like, okay, well, we seem to have, a, we can find these juvenile males, uh, but where are the rest of them? And yeah, so hardly anyone is seeing any whale sharks between like birth size, which is probably about uh, kind of 50, 60 centimeters long. Okay. And, and then they disappear and um, 
well, or we, we just don't see them. We don't see them when they're that size either. Uh, but then they start re-emerging at these kind of coastal feeding areas at about three or four metres long yeah. uh, seems to be the pattern. So that's that's a a, a very small whale shark to be, it'll, like, even though it's nowhere near their birth size, like they're just off somewhere else at that point. And there's so many people in the water these days, you know, like between fishing and diving and, and people cruising around on boats that you would, if they were obvious, we would see them. So I figured they're living somewhere that is not obvious, uh, which most likely is kind of out in the open ocean or something, uh, and possibly not not at the surface the whole time. Yeah. So yeah, that's like it's it's very much a we know where they're not <laughs> because yeah. we don't really see them. <laughs> so it's kind of trying to figure out okay, where are the places where. Uh, where we're not very good at looking because yeah. um, obviously you know the open ocean stuff i mean that's the the biggest habitat in the world uh, but it's very difficult to study and because whale sharks I, I mean they won't take a bait or anything like that um so they just they don't tend to get caught on things like long lines and that like a lot of other uh commercially caught species yeah. species are like sort of blues and makos and things that again are like quite open ocean species but we know a lot more about them yeah yeah so yeah there's plenty there's plenty to unpack with that question <laughs> this uh, unsurprisingly but um but yeah in, in recent years we've been I, i've kind of been trying to focus in on a bit more about what the females are doing because with a very depleted population as i as i said earlier those are the ones like we need we need them to breed we need more whale sharks so it's the juvenile males uh it's like it's it's great to learn more about them, but mm -hmm. that is not helping the species recover. We need to make sure we're like effectively protecting these, um, especially the the females that are kind of close to close to the size of adulthood, mm. uh, because those are the ones that have been through that 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 time probably quite long period where they're small and they're probably quite vulnerable to natural predators and things and these are the ones that have got a long breeding life ahead of them um yeah. but we're, we're just not very good at finding them so far so we've um we've identified a few places where we can see fairly large females on a fairly regular basis and they're all a long way offshore mm -hmm. um like way over the continental shelf uh places like the northern galapagos islands and and St. Helena, uh, out in the mid-Atlantic and, and, um, and some offshore seamounts off Mexico. So we kind of figure that the adults are moving out into this open ocean because that's the only place we are seeing them. But, um, yeah, still some pretty big gaps there. Well, do we know, um, uh, you know Christina Zanato, she asked me a, a question to ask you, um, seeing as she, um, has a lot to do with sharks in the Bahamas. Um, but, she tends to see obviously those sharks those caribbean sharks um using their mangroves as a, a nursery do we have any kind of idea on where whale sharks would do this kind of uh nursery is it is it another one that's an unknown it's a super interesting question um and short answer is i don't know and the long answer is like it's a really interesting don't know i think <laughs> so um they've kind of found with some of the open ocean species like blues and makos that they do use what we'd kind of define as nursery areas, but they're pelagic nursery areas. So mm -hmm. really quite large um, areas of the open ocean where you're likely to find the little ones. And a big part of that might be because like they're kind of crappy bits of the ocean without much productivity. So there isn't much in the, there aren't too many larger predators that would try to eat them because obviously that's a, a uh, pretty big priority for a small shark is not getting eaten. Mm. Um, so I've got my suspicions that the whale sharks might be doing something similar, uh, but almost completely without evidence. Um, so to, I, I guess to give you some context on that, there's probably only been like maybe 40 uh, baby whale sharks of less than a meter long or so that have ever been found in the wild. So, wow. Um, and that, and they've been very scattered across the world. So we really don't know very much about them. Um, but yeah, that, that's my suspicion at the moment. Yeah. Like ask me again tomorrow, I might give a different answer, but, um, but I would not be surprised if they are using these, what I'd call kind of a pelagic nursery area somewhere. Mm. Don't know where yet. Yeah.
Well, I suppose there's even a, 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 a there's possibilities that it, it could be constantly moving as well. I suppose. I'm For just sure, thinking about yeah. other. And I, I mean, oceanographic conditions that are going to really. I, I mean, it's a very dynamic environment out there. Um, mm. So, yeah. I, for sure it might not be a very reliable place to go looking yeah. and i mean baby whale sharks like when you look at them i mean they've um they've got a very like floppy kind of swimming motion and things i mean they look completely useless so yeah. they're not, probably not very good swimmers when they're so i i i suspect they might be uh, i mean they're, they're probably not not very good at swimming long distances. They're basically plankton themselves. Yeah. Um, so yeah, certainly if there's like shifting kind of ocean currents and things going around, that they're, they're likely to get shifted with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask as well was um, your opinion on still going on the the young whale sharks, but those locations around the world where locals feed the whale sharks. And you know it helps tourism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we see so many whale sharks, adult whale sharks, that um, have severe uh, scarring across their backs from where they've been hit by boats. And I can't help think that um, these incidences might have increased because the sharks are, are recognizing hulls as a, a source of food. Um, have you guys ever yeah, looked at that a, kind of thing? I, I, I certainly think it's kind of the big controversy in whale sharks. I think it's this, um, the kind of provisioning tourism, as they refer to it, when people kind of feed them to habituate them to people and make sure they can get kind of up close and regular encounters and things. Yeah. Um, I think it's a nuanced one. Like, I mean, there's no denying like how much money it brings into some of these, uh, at least previously impoverished communities and some really remote areas and, and people can can certainly value the whale sharks more uh, when they are like tangibly worth something to them. Mm. Um, I think it, it depends a little bit on the the area and stuff and how much it's done too. But like in general, I, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of mm. of the practice. Um, I think for me, coming from again from the cons- kind of conservation side of things. Like they're an endangered species, and if we're going to be basically exploiting them for profit, there needs to be something in it for the species as well. Yeah. So, if some of these, like places like Oslob, for instance, which is of course the the largest largest of them, and you've got hundreds of thousands of people going to Cebu in the Philippines to see these sharks, it's yeah. one of the largest tourism attractions in the Philippines now. Now, I mean, that money isn't really going back into certainly not whale shark conservation. Um, so I think the missed opportunity with some of these mass tourism sites with whale sharks is uh, that their like education and stuff that they give to their guests is not very good either. So you've got an opportunity with a place like that to create hundreds of thousands of ambassadors for, for whale sharks each year. And that, that has value for sure. Um, like, uh, yeah, that, that would be a useful thing, but like, as as far as I know, um, the education hasn't really improved either since the last time I was there. So at the moment, like, I mean, I I think there are bigger problems for whale sharks than than bad tourism, mm-hmm. but it's certainly a very visible one, and it's one of the ways where people are clearly profiting from the sharks. And I really think that more could be done to ensure that's more of a partnership uh, between kind of humans and the sharks to help them bounce back. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's let's move on to the stuff that you guys do know. Um or <laughs> yeah. Um how how do you how do you track these guys because they you know I'm expecting that they travel freely all over the place or do they have uh, migratory routes that you see them on regularly or Yeah, well we're still we're still sort of trying to work that out, but um but yeah, it's a really interesting problem because we have because they do, I mean, they move a long way. I mean, they can easily do 100 kilometers in a day, and we're talking um, sort of 10, 20,000 kilometers a year. Mm. Um, even if they're not going very far, I mean, they're like in distance wise, they're constantly swimming. So they're covering a huge amount of ground. Um, so basically, like, we can't follow them in boats. Um, they're just moving too far and too fast. 
So we've had to use tags that can communicate with satellites so that we can retrieve the data from them remotely. Um, but there we were at, we've run into the technological limitation in that we, we don't have tags at the stage that can communicate through water and air. So we either have to have like a, a receiving station underwater and collect information from the tags underwater, or we've got to get them up into the air somehow. So, um, so one way we've been doing that is using, uh, is putting tags on the top of their dorsal fins uh, okay. just now, like on little kind of clamps that, that are sort of designed to last for a few months. And then each time the shark comes up near the surface, uh, if there's a satellite, the correct co- type of satellite overhead, uh, then we'll get like a ping of where our shark is that day. So that's a really good way to, to see where they're going. Um, the problem is that, that sometimes like, they they won't come to the surface for a month or so, mm. uh, like at, at least long enough for the the tag to be able to communicate with the satellite. Yeah. So the other kind of tag we've been using is these what we call archival tags, and they're designed to just stay on the shark, uh, record data, um, and usually we set them for about six months or so, and then they've got a little electronic release, and they fall off the tag off the shark. Uh, they float up to the surface, and then when they're floating on the surface, they can then upload their data to the satellite. So from them, we get we get really good information on like depth and things that the the sharks are swimming at, mm-hmm. um, and but quite rough information on where they're swimming because rather than getting like a GPS track where it's trying to reconstruct their movement based on time of sunrise and sunset and when the sun is like midday time mm-hmm. um so especially in the tropics uh that's quite tough because you don't get that variation in day length um yeah. but yeah it's like it's kind of been a combination of the two types really uh so we, we've definitely seen some places like the galapagos where we've been doing a lot of tagging on uh adult female whale sharks the really really big ones mm-hmm. um they do seem to have a a pretty regular pattern of movement uh like we suspect they're heading out into what for them is kind of a feeding area out in the eastern Pacific uh, where there's a lot of currents meeting and it's a very productive area. And then often they're cruising back towards the South American mainland, but not usually staying in like a few hundred metres of water. Like they're still a reasonable way offshore, uh, but again, very productive area. So Mm -hmm. they seem to have a bit of a circuit they do. um, But the problem for us is getting tags to stay on for more than a few months okay. so it's pretty hard to see like a whether they're doing kind of an annual loop or, or on a, a larger time scale or something like that yeah. we only really get a snapshot and you're you're going back are you going back to the galapagos next year next year yes yeah. um yeah so obviously things have been pretty interrupted over the last 18 months or so <laughs> just a bit. uh but well, well since the start of last year uh, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully things are normalizing next year. But, um, it's really good in that, like the, the team we work with over in the Galapagos are, uh, mostly Ecuador based and, mm. and they will be getting out again, uh, next month. So, I so that's really cool. I'm yeah. sad that I won't be with them, uh, but it's great that the work can continue. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'm not much the same. I pushed mine back as well, but, um, I've even taken the plunge and I've completely scrapped off the idea of next year and pushed it to 2023. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly pretty difficult to plan ahead at the moment. Just a bit. So what what are you doing at the moment then? You must be climbing the walls. Um, well, it's well, I've 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 been over in New Zealand for up until uh last month. And it was actually I had that that textbook I mentioned before, that was well overdue. Uh (laughs) the publisher had been very uh, very patient, uh, but last year I really had no excuse um, rather than to to get onto that. So yeah. it was actually, a, it ended up being kind of good timing in that like I couldn't travel, so I had no excuse not to work on it. Yeah. But um, but also lots of people around the world that I work with were kind of in the same metaphorical boat. So there was lots of people going through their old data and publishing it and things. And, and like we learned a lot about whale sharks last year. Um I was very happy to send away uh, the draft um, <laughs> kind of early this year. And then, yeah, uh, my, my wife and I are over here in, in Brisbane now mm. and uh, helping out some some friends with some projects here in Australia. So 
it's um yeah good to get it's been a long time between sharks for me so it's been pretty good to get some <laughs> diving in uh, places like byron bay and stuff and yeah. and start start some projects down there oh good on you oh yeah because we we first started talking when you were um you're looking at the um wobbegongs aren't you yeah yeah there's so i was just trying to kind of get my head around what was being done at the moment and uh my friend david that uh owns the sundive dive center at byron bay uh he did his phd with me uh several years ago now uh so now that he's in australia he was pretty keen to get some research going and he loves the leopard sharks yeah and as i mean everyone does leopard sharks they're just inherently a lovable (laughs) species um so and he was kind of like well why don't you know, why don't you come hang out and we can sort of brainstorm about other fun things to do. Um, and like this, I, I mean, in Australia, you know, like on the East Coast, for sure. I mean, wobbegongs are one of these things. There's there's plenty of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you see them diving all the time, but actually not that much is known about them. Uh, one of my friends did his PhD on, on them, like the same time I was kind of doing my PhD. And uh, since then, there hasn't been a, a great deal done since, uh, certainly in sort of like new sort of, central new south wales up um mm. so yeah i was like oh that's quite interesting and yeah kind of having a look around for things to do um well i can't play with my whale sharks this year <laughs> uh, but yeah i but i mean yeah certainly some of the stuff over here is super interesting as well so i'm quite into it at the moment oh no pressure then you and david have got to get, get your heads together and come up with some serious data for when i get david on the show uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah, no, we've already had a few emails back and forth so he's, he's oh nice one. they're, they're going to yeah, be yeah, the no, uh, he's, he's got plenty to add yeah yeah they'll be the low our gurus on julian rocks yeah um what what do you know about the aggregation hotspots because every now and then you get those aerial photos come up with loads of whale sharks in one area is, is it generally food that attracts them to the locations Yes, always. Always. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think of them as being like kind of the Labradors of the ocean. They're very highly food motivated. Yeah. Um, so most of the time when you see these shots of lots of whale sharks together on the surface, it tends to be uh, tuna spawn. Mm-hmm. So um, there's the, the tuna all get together and spawn in a specific area. And then all these little eggs, uh, which are like very calorie dense, they're little kind of drops of oil mm. uh in massive massive quantities they all float up to the surface and um and i mean that is like an absolute extravaganza for whale sharks <laughs> so it happens quite consistently off uh sort of cancun and mm-hmm. um, the atlantic coast of mexico or um kind of caribbean gulf of mexico um and off uh qatar in the in the arabian gulf as well oh, really? and very similar situation in both um and I mean, especially in Mexico, I, I mean, my suspicion is that whale sharks are traveling from maybe thousands of kilometers around to take advantage of that. Like, I mean, there was some back of the envelope calculations done on their calorie intake. Mm. Um, and it's, it was something like 43,000 kilocalories, which meant nothing to me. So I put it in terms of chocolate and that's about eight kilograms of, of dairy milk chocolate per day. Um, <laughs> so there's, and and a lot of the sharks are probably sticking around for a month or so. So I mean, they might not with that kind of calorie load for yeah. uh, like a cold blooded animal. Um, they might not even need to feed much again, like for the rest of the year. Wow. So it's well worth uh, well worth sort of homing in on for them. So that that's when you tend to get the big numbers together where there's where there's a really um, where there's a lot of food for yeah. them, a lot of calories. <laughs> Eight kilos. Jesus. Yeah, I can. I, was, I can eat yeah, a fair bit of chocolate. Kind of my spirit but, animal, really. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking the same. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the on the serious bits, then um, uh, endangerment. Um, we all know that sharks. Well, literally every shark in the bloody water is endangered. But how severe is the whale sharks count at the moment, and what's being done about it? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, whale sharks are probably more severe than most. Um, they have, again, like when we were sort of putting together information to, to get this book out, uh, we realized that they've got one of the, what we call like the slowest life histories of any shark. So they probably don't become adults till they're like 30 or 40 years old. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how old they get, but there's a good chance it's kind of a hundred plus. Um, so, they really don't 
well, yeah, it takes them a long time to grow up. They're very slow growing and things. So, and when they, I, I mentioned before, like when they're small, they've probably got a lot of predators. Uh, but if they, the few that survive that kind of period of their lives, it's, it's, I, I kind of liken their life history a little bit to like sea turtles that have loads of babies. Mm. Only a few of them will survive. But if they do, then they've probably got quite a long life ahead of them. And, and whale sharks are similar, except people have started hunting them like when they've got to a few meters long. So we're getting these, this tiny fraction of whale sharks that have managed to survive and then like just nailing them through mm. fisheries. And, and you mentioned like boat strikes before, and that's probably. Uh, one of the most significant threats now. Mm. Um, so the, the problem has been that like it's actually very difficult to monitor their numbers for us. Uh, we've mostly been, like for instance, in Mozambique, like I, I mean, I was working in one kind of area where we consistently saw whale sharks. Mm. But I mean, whale sharks are super mobile. Like it's not like, like if the environment changes, they can just move. Like mm. they're, they don't seem to do it, but I mean, these sharks are easily capable of just swimming over to Western Australia if it's like better over there for them. So it's really difficult to disentangle like a, a true population decline or a recovery for mm. that matter, um, yeah. from just them shifting around. So that's kind of what we've been trying to tease out. So at the moment, though, based on what we like all the kind of various bits of information we were able to tie together, uh, yeah, we think that. More than half of the population has been killed uh, since commercial fisheries really started sort of back in the 1980s or so. Mm. Um, pro probably a little bit less than that in the Atlantic Ocean uh, where there hasn't been the target fisheries, uh, but they have been like there's been focused whale shark fisheries in several countries in the Indian Ocean and, and Western Pacific. And that's massively depleted the numbers. Mm. Yeah, but yeah. is it the usual suspects, the usual countries that are doing this? Uh, it's been, it's, uh, I mean, yes, ultimately. I, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the, there was demand for fins and meat uh, and things from China. And it was really interesting actually looking at some of the old historical literature. I mean, this international trade in, in whale shark fins has been going on since the earliest reference I found was, uh, I think, uh, 1907. So this has been happening for a long time, but I mean, it just really, really accelerated during the 1980s. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was fisheries in uh, Philippines and Taiwan and India and a small fishery in the Maldives uh, that was probably more local. Um, but like they, they kind of just ran out of sharks, mm. really. Like, and I mean, you can, when you've got a shark that doesn't even become an adult till they're maybe 40 years old. I mean, that happens, that happens very quickly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it wasn't some big kind of realization of how much we should sort of protect them in most countries. Unfortunately, um, it was more that it became uneconomic. Yeah. Um, so it, you asked though about what we are doing about it. And, and thankfully there is a lot of really good stuff going on now. Um, so one of the good things that like as depressing as that exercise was for me, of sort of trying to tie together all these like various accounts to and and working out that we'd lost more than half of them over the time that I'd been alive, mm. like that really, I think helped mobilize uh, people to to start protecting them better. So um, once we realised they were like a endangered species globally, um, based on the sort of quantitative criteria we set for that, um, they were. Uh, they were listed on the United Nations uh, Convention on Migratory Species um, Appendix 1, which is kind of the closest thing we have really to international protection. Okay. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't, it's not really legal protection. It's more like a, like a strong suggestion. Mm. Um, so it's up to, it's up to countries now that have signed off on that, that they actually do have to protect the, the sharks in their own waters. So, we're sort of working with a few different countries on that now and like it's it's already led to them being protected in mozambique which of course was a really cool thing for me because that's where i started mm -hmm. and hopefully soon in, in madagascar which is another whale shark hotspot we know about now um and a few other different places too so yeah there's i think the the fisheries have really slowed down um there's still a lot of accidental catches of whale sharks 
going on. Mm. Uh, I suspect more than we've actually known about. Um, there's some huge gillnet fisheries that I, I didn't know very much about uh, in the in the Indian Ocean and um, and sort of Western Pacific. And there's like hundreds, uh, I think thousands. Oh, actually, I think it was in a couple of hundred thousand boats uh, with nets up to about 30, 35 kilometers long uh, going out targeting tuna and pelagics and things. And I mean, no, like no one's taking any um, information about the bycatch, uh, but there's been some really good work done um, by um, some Pakistani researchers and they've been like either training some of the people working on the boats to collect data or, or also having having their um their research team going out on the boats and uh, i mean there's certainly whale sharks being caught out there yeah and um they estimated i think that that fishery o- over the last few decades has caught over four million uh whales and dolphins Holy shit. as well in those areas so i was like i i i was not aware of the extent of these fisheries um yeah. and I think the issue now is also like even though the targeted fisheries for whale sharks might have stopped, uh, we know they're at a very low level. So other other issues like ship strikes and that, which probably is pretty significant, and and even things like plastic ingestion and that, um, these are all kind of cumulative impacts. Like they're not they're not working in isolation. Uh, so they're just piling on pressure on an already depleted population. So. Yeah, we really like it's the protection is starting to happen, uh, and none too soon. Uh, yeah. There is still plenty of work to be done, and it's it is going to take them a, a long time to recover. I think yeah. as well. So, um, yeah, we're just kind of working through like identifying the threats and working out how to how to like practical solutions. Yeah. Really. Um, yeah. yeah. So you mentioned that um, they get to adulthood about the age of forty. Um, you know. Around about my age, really, you know, sprightly. Um, is that when they reach sexual maturity, or is it earlier than that? Yeah, so we think so. We're trying to work it out, um, and we know, like, it's it's quite tricky to work out how old sharks are. Mm. Um, so a lot of species, uh, you know, like the trees. Obviously, you've got the the rings and trees, and that, and you can kind of count the count the bands and you can work out how old they are mm. and um and that works in a similar way actually to a lot of sharks um but whale sharks seem like the well i, I think they're a tricky one and that like a tree obviously can't move you know like in, in sort of temperate climes they've got um they've got a summer and they've got a winter and they're going to grow faster and they're going to go slower whereas a whale shark that happens to like 26 degree water if it gets cold it can just swim over to where the water is warmer yeah. um so i'm yeah so we're still trying to kind of get our heads around that a bit um but yeah best guess is that it's about sort of 30 to 40 years old and about eight to nine meters and yeah. in males um where we can actually they've got like the only only difference between them is that males have got a a reproductive organ called a clasper um, that pokes out of their pelvic fins. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've kind of got to sort of swim underneath them and disrespect their privacy for a moment. <laughs> um, but uh, females, unless like we we don't have a way to define if they are adults or not right. um, externally, uh, which is where the ultrasound is is obviously proving pretty useful because we can see the internal development. Uh, that's going on with them so that's kind of the i think the new frontier now uh but but i mean we it's it's a cool technique and it'll be amazing to see like one of the big questions is how often they they have a litter of young Mm. um but i mean we know they are becoming adults at about 10 meters long also because the only pregnant female that's been examined was like 10.6 meters long so (laughs) it's somewhere in that kind of that kind of range um but yeah so we're still, tr- still trying to work out the age, though. But yeah, it's somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. What's um, I've got to ask. I've not asked it for a while. Um, being the title of the show is, you know, scuba greatest of all time. Can you actually think of an individual dive that is your greatest of all time, or are they all kind of blended into one now? Uh, oh, I wouldn't go that far. Um, mm-hmm. There's certainly a few standouts. Um, there's there, 
I've had some pretty epic dives in the Galapagos, let's say, uh, working on the project up there. It is, um, it's all, it can be a bit unfair to other dive sites, I think, uh, mm. when there's, when it's really on up there, just in terms of like, you've got thousands of hammerhead sharks and, and really gigantic whale sharks coming through and big yellowfin tuna and silky sharks and black tip sharks and all this turtles and that just, it's, it's, it's insane, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. Um, so I've definitely had some sort of standout dives up there. Mm. Um, and a couple of really good ones in Mozambique, I guess. There's, um, yeah, my, I guess one that there's a little bit of a, yeah, like a, a specific, uh, mm. one was a really interesting one for me was my accidental first solo dive over in Mozambique, uh, where we were working on a, a film crew working with a film crew uh, shooting a documentary on Andrea's work on the mantas and um, the safety diver had forgotten most of his gear uh, that was supposed to be my dive buddy and <laughs> I had to install some equipment like so they could so they could film it like they yeah. wanted to film a manta swimming past it and um, and he was like oh it's, it's fine you know I've only got one fin and uh, 80 bar uh, but and no mask I think but I'll just hold on to the back of your tank and you can kind of kick me around and I was like well as a safety diver like that's like I, I mean that's not very safe he, did, he didn't get his salary did he he didn't pay him for the day's work <laughs> yeah, I, I, hope, I, I hope not it's like you had one job buddy um, but, but you should yeah, have charged so, him a fee so as a like, chauffeur no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I was like, well, I know this dive site well. Like, I'll just do it by myself. Like, you know, yeah. there's no worries at all. And went down with this uh, equipment and um, was installing it and and put it in and looked up and it was a bloody uh, white shark swimming past <laughs> um, coming to check me out. And that was the first white shark I'd ever seen underwater. Yeah. So I shit myself. Um, and then, um, and like the, I, I mean, it was, I was pretty deep. It was very murky and I, I just finished installing this equipment. So I was quite low on air. Yeah. So I was just like, oh, geez, you know, I've got to <laughs> ascend through this water column, like just rotating like top, trying to see what was around me in just a couple of meters visibility and, um, got back onto the surface and, um, and like yelled at, there was, we had three boats there because there were so many of the, the film crew and things. Yeah. And like my boat was a hundred meters away and I'd just go, <laughs> get me on any boat. And uh, just sitting in the middle of it. Um, and I was just like, but the, the almost the next day we went out again and I was like, I was still kind of buzzing from this whole encounter. And I mean, it's all in, it's all in your head, right? Mm. Like, I mean, it's not like the shark tried to attack me or anything like that. It was just kind of vaguely curious. Um, but like pretty that we went the next day and like the same thing happened again and I had to dive by myself in the same place. And I was just like and I was quite a thing of us, I was going, Oh my like I'm shitting myself here. And then I was like, Well, actually, you know what? If I hadn't looked up at that exact moment, I never would have seen the shark. Yeah. So it would have been a completely normal dive for me because it's not like it did anything. It just swam past me. Mm. So if I just pretend that I never saw it, it's totally fine. And then, and for whatever reason, that worked in my kind of easily amused brain. So, um, so yeah, I was just like, yeah, sweet as did the dive, didn't think about it twice. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was definitely a, no, probably not my best dive, but like certainly one of my most memorable. Yeah. I think that'll, yeah, that'll, think that track, st that'll stay with you for a while. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I've yet to have the whitey uh, moment. Um, I'm sure it'll come. Um, it's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've had a similar moment with a tiger shark the first time I saw one of those. But um, I think a whitey has got to be that's got to be the number one that's that gets your bum going, isn't it? <laughs> oh, bloody jaws! Yeah, got a lot to answer for. <laughs> well, um, what, what what can people who are listening in and and reading your books and and following you on social media all those kind of things what what can they do to is there anything they can do to help with the research that you guys are doing um yeah so i i mean we've mentioned that global database mm -hmm. um so one of the things that people can do if you have got any whale shark photos um if you've had a chance to swim with them before i mean it's cool to get those submitted to the the database uh some of the most so that's at uh, whaleshark.org Mm -hmm. uh, fairly easy one to remember um some of the most interesting sightings have come in from 
like what we call sort of citizen scientists, like interested divers or or just kind of people on the water with a camera and an interest. Uh, so we've had some whale sharks identified from New Zealand now, and uh, the longest distance re-sighting from uh, Ningaloo Reef over in Western Australia, uh, one was picked up up in Borneo uh, oh. by someone that just took a photo of a whale shark as it swam past his boat. It just <laughs> happened to be at the right angle that we could actually identify it from that. Um, so that's a good one. Uh, if you go to marinemegafauna.org, mm-hmm. uh, the Marine Megafauna Foundation's website, uh, you can adopt a whale shark. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sign up to our um, free uh, magazine as well, um, Ocean Giants, and that's that's got all the stuff about um, yeah, I, I mean what we're up to mm. and things on it. So that's where all our kind of new research results and things like that get released. So that's a pretty good way to stay up and and um, learn about ways you can support the work that's going on and helping whale sharks as well. Yeah, I think there's a fair few people out there with photos of whale sharks, and they can go rummage and start fl- flinging them into you hopefully yeah well the thing is i mean you know when we think about how old whale sharks might be mm. even really old photos are some of the most interesting um all photos are useful um but like yeah there's if you've got like a if you've if you're an experienced diver and you've been diving for a while or you've got like a dad or a granddad or or mum or um <laughs> grandmother <laughs> or something that's been diving for for decades, then yeah, definitely sort through their collection. Yeah, especially if, if they used to wear red beanies and tight speedos. Yeah, that's the way. <laughs> yep. It'll come back in fashion. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'll wait until you've done it first, and then I'll contemplate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm that much of a trendsetter. <laughs> Happy days. Um, well, Simon, I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. I think we've been going for around about an hour or so. Um, mm. if, is there any uh, points that you'd like to raise for? Anyone who's listening, just before we go, uh, how do just, people reach I you? I hope that image of me and Speedos really sticks with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you're in Australia. You've got to buy some budgie smugglers. <laughs> <laughs> when in Rome. Yeah. <laughs> Happy days. Um, Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure, dude. And um, I look forward to you coming back on the show at some time in the future. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Podcast for the inquisitive diver.